Good evening. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. We are tonight moving on to the next section of Paul's extended exhortations against idolatry. As we've noted in previous sermons, the first 14 verses of chapter 10, we could summarize as warnings against the dangers of presumption, pride, blatant idolatry, grumbling, testing Christ, all listed and illustrated by Paul as sinful examples from the Old Testament for us to avoid. And after the sin of presumption, we have our text tonight, which is a warning against the idolatrous, idolatrous temptation towards compromise, thoughtless compromise. And next time, Lord willing, we'll get to verses 23 and following, and we'll see the dangers of legalism as it relates to temple worship and idolatry. But let's start by reading our text, 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak... As to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that the food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit, through the reading and proclamation of your word, that our thoughts would be rightly ordered. That we would have the confusion and the blindness that comes because of sin in this world lifted from our eyes. That we would be able to rightly judge and rightly discern. And with right thinking, we would have right action. We ask that we would be doers of the word and not merely hearers. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We can begin by noting in verse 14 that Paul's statement to flee from idolatry is kind of a hinge verse. It serves as a transition point from the preceding section, summarizing everything that he had said, but also leading very well into the next section. He's addressing, in a more general way, the sins of the Old Testament fathers. And now he's moving into a more specific exhortation against the sin of idolatry. The problem was, apparently in Corinth, there were people not merely eating the meat that had been sacrificed to the idols, which had been the background's concern since chapter 8, but it also appears that there were some Corinthian believers who were actively participating in the pagan temple worship ceremonies. They were present for, and in some measure at least, partaking in the idolatrous ceremonies. And Paul wants them to see the danger of compromise, of knowingly or unwittingly partaking in 
our fellowship with demons. And I think you can see in the questions and the rebuttals that, that Paul is preempting here. The Corinthians might be tempted to think back to what Paul had previously said and argue against Paul. They say, but Paul, you've already said in chapter 8 that the idols are nothing, that they have no real existence, that there's no God but one. And if that's the case, what harm could there possibly be of us going to our old stomping grounds and enjoying the celebrations and the parties like we used to? There's no harm in us participating if the idol is non-existent. What's wrong with that? It's just meat. It's just food and wine. We're just hanging out with old friends. Paul seems to anticipate this kind of logic, and he gives us in this section several key texts to open our eyes to the spiritual realities at play behind the ceremonies. He's pulling back the curtain, as it were, to let us see these greater entities and forces lurking behind seemingly innocuous ceremonies. And Paul's argumentation, we will note, can, can be observed in a pattern that he repeats twice. That pattern is this, think, question, acknowledge. Think, question, and acknowledge. He uses that pattern twice. Look at verse 15, and we'll see the first exhortation to think. Think, he says, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. Judge for yourselves. Examine the evidence. He's saying, in a loving way, use your brains. And there's a little play on words here with judge. The Corinthians had previously boasted in their ability to be judging, to be discerning, to reckon. They had viewed themselves as logically and intellectually mature Christians with gifts in the area of discernment and logic and rhetoric. And so Paul says, let's see you use it. He presses them. And I think it's worth noting in Paul a disposition that all good teachers and all good leaders will have. Paul is in a position of authority. He was their apostle. And he could have said something like this, by the power and the authority given to me by Jesus Christ himself, I forbid you to go to any pagan ceremonies. He could have said that. He could have thrown down his credentials, really put his foot down, but he didn't do that. He wanted them instead to use the gifts that God had given to them, to reason, to consider, to judge for themselves. He doesn't merely want to train them on what to think. He wants them to see how to think. And that's what the best of teachers and leaders want to do. They don't merely want to create mindless robots that can blindly submit and ask no questions. Right? Good teachers want to create individual thinker, thinkers that wrestle with and pursue after truth. Christianity is truth. It's not afraid of reason. Rather, Christianity accords with reason. It is a reasonable faith. We're not afraid of logic. We're not afraid of questioning and investigation. Of course, this principle isn't always applied in the same way. Right? When I tell my two-year-old to put on their jacket, we're going outside, and that two-year-old asks, well, why? I'm not in that moment going to give him a dissertation on the relationship between climate and human immune systems. My two-year-old cannot reason and use logic yet. What he needs in that moment is to know that daddy said so, daddy loves me, and I can trust daddy. 
That's, that's what he needs to do. And he needs to learn at that young age how to submit. Now, if I, te- if I teach a 16-year-old in the same way, I'm doing them a disservice. If our 16-year-old only and ever hears, because I said so, with no training in reason on their own, then the parent is doing that child a disservice. We want young people to be trained to think. Think rightly. Think biblically. But not trained to blindly submit without question. We want them to be Bereans. We encourage that at church. Wouldn't we also want that at home? Of course. The, problem, the same is true in every area of leadership. But it's especially true in the church. If you're ever under leadership that refuses to reason from scripture or to reason from sound logic and instead consistently appeals to their, their position, their, their office, their role, their credentials, their, their superiority, you need to be careful. Authoritarians, tyrants, poor leaders, all of them can hide behind an impenetrable wall of their authority and they can view questions as implicit or explicit threats. Christians, instead, should stand clearly on the truth of God and sound reason flowing from it, and therefore should not be fearful or threatened by questions. And that's what Paul does. He he seeks to get the Corinthians to think clearly about the situation. And what does he get them to think? Well, let's look at verse 16, where he poses two questions for them to consider, two rhetorical questions about the nature of the ceremonies. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? His larger point behind these questions is this. Participation is not neutral. Participation is not neutral. I'll I'll go more into the nature of that participation when we get into later passages. But the point tonight is that, yes, an idol made of wood or metal is nothing, but there cannot be neutrality within the realm of these idols. He drives that that point home with a question about the Lord's Supper. The cup that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Partaking of the Lord's Supper is no meaningless, spiritually insignificant ceremony. Christ's Spirit is active, working in and through the means of the table to strengthen and bolster the heart of the faithful. Furthermore, the table actually becomes the occasion for God-leveling discipline for those partaking without the proper heart of faith. We see that later in this book. And if that's true of the Lord's ceremony... If it's true that deeper spiritual forces are at play at the table, why would we think anything less is at play at pagan temples? Participation in the ceremony, which is on the surface, nothing but food and drink, is no mere neutral event. It involves interaction with spiritual realities, which are not indifferent. So don't be naive, Paul is saying. The same is true with the bread. The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Being involved with the Lord's ceremony is not a mere snack time in the middle of service. If that's all it was, it would be a sad table. Cracker and a little shot glass. Participation at the table is to fellowship with, to commune with, to participate with a spiritual presence 
working in and through the meal. And that leads us to another principle, verse 17, a principle to acknowledge in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. The Lord's Supper, our shared loaf, illustrates the unity and the oneness that we have as the body of Christ. Shared participation in the ceremony points towards a larger reality of horizontal participation. Fellowship, communion, koinonia. It's unity. Individual Christians don't partake of the Lord's Supper at home in their closets. Or they're not supposed to. It's a meal for the body of Christ, the local expression of the church. It's a shared experience of taking the Lord's Supper together. Not merely us individually communing with Jesus. We're also communing with one another under the ministry of the Lord in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is a communal act of shared faith and obedience. And so in light of that principle, how should we then think about what's happening at the pagan temples? Participating in the pagan ceremonies is participation with, communion with, fellowship with the others around us. That's his logic. And he reinforces that logic with another round of his cycle. Think, question, acknowledge. Look at verse 18. He says, consider, think, reason, use your brain, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? He's saying, think about this. Think about what's happening. He uses this Old Testament illustration, not merely as a sermon note, but also to draw a a principle for sound reasoning. Consider the people. Are they not those who eat at at the altar, participants with the altar? That's not the one who eats the sacrifice, fellowshipping, communing with. Right? So when you think, when a Hebrew brought an animal to be slaughtered as an offering, and then he ate of some of the cooked meat, is that Hebrew not necessarily participating in that act of worship? You can't separate the eating of the meat from what's happening on the altar. The two are connected. Participation is more than mere performance. It's because participation gives expression to who we are, to what we think, to what we believe. Participation gives expression to what's going on in our heads and in our hearts. At least it should. But Paul, didn't you already say that idols are nothing? Didn't you already say we could eat the meat or not eat the meat? It seems like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth, Paul. Which is it? Idols are nothing or idols are something? Because if there's something, we don't want to participate. But if they're nothing, then why can't we go participate like we used to? Great questions. Paul, the master orator, anticipates their thoughts and offers more questions. Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? There's that thinking again. What am I saying here? Are you tracking with me? You keeping up with what I'm saying? Where do our premises take our conclusions? That the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Which is it, Paul? No, 
The idol's nothing in itself. The idol is a mere man-made trinket. It's a piece of wood. It's a piece of metal. It's birthed out of ignorance and total deception. They have no power on their own. They cannot move. They cannot speak. They are powerless. The Old Testament makes that clear in many places. Isaiah 41, 29. Behold, they, the idols, are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. They are metal images and empty wind. They're lifeless, useless, powerless. They're nothing. And yet, and yet, Paul wants us to see more, to see what's behind the idol. That's the principle to acknowledge. Verse 20. He said, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Paul is saying that the pagan idols are in themselves nothing. They have no real existence. That's why meat sacrificed to them and sold in the market, eat it or not. But the ceremonies, the rites, the culture, the language, the behavior, all of that surrounding the idol worship is fueled and overseen and influenced by demonic activity. There are spiritual forces surrounding and encouraging pagan idolatry. And that's the problem. And so Paul doesn't give us a simple answer of you can do this, but you can't do that. That's what we want. We want Paul to tell us, here's how you behave and here's how you don't behave. He says, think. Paul gets to the nub. He doesn't want the Christians to participate with, to fellowship with, to commune with, to be influenced by demonic forces. So let's, let's stop here for a minute and reflect on what the Bible teaches about some of these spiritual dynamics. I'm going to give us a few bullet points about the nature of these spiritual realities. Number one, demons work to deceive. Demons work to deceive. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. That is an interesting phrase. To blind someone's mind. Not their eyes. Their mind. The pagans in the temple ceremonies are blind of mind. They can't see where their thinking is taking them. They are clouded in their thoughts. They are unable naturally to see the truth and the glory of Christ. They are unaware of Satan's schemes. They are led around by the nose by the deception of the demonic. They're enslaved, we could say, by their deception. That leads to another point. Number two, idolatry breeds vulnerability. Idolatry breeds vulnerability. We see that in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Anytime there's worship of a creature, worship of any idol, of any created Thing, it leads down a path of sin that clouds our minds. It makes us futile in our thinking. It darkens our hearts. 
When we bow down to any idol, don't be surprised to see Satan and his demons showing up and acting in ways to foster this. Idolatry makes one exposed to demonic manipulation, liable to satanic delusion and deception. Say, that's, that's, that's fine, but I'm, I'm a believer now. That was just for unbelievers, right? right? Number three, Christians are not immune to deception. Christians are not immune to deception. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about the serpent that deceived Eve. And a little later, he says of the false teachers, for such men are false apostles. They are deceitful workmen. They are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and purity. Satan works through the deceived false apostles, claiming to be working on behalf of Christ. This happens all the time. There are a whole slew of false religions bearing varying levels of correspondence to true Christianity that are full of deceived leaders seeking to lead others in their deception. The Roman Catholic Church, for example. Many marks that are similar to biblical Christianity, and yet the heart of the whole thing undermines the gospel, and it turns faith into an idolatrous religion of man's works, rather than grace. Mormonism. Jehovah's Witnesses. These are certainly idolatrous religions under the influence of demonic forces. They're seeking to hide the truth and obscure Christ. We've got Islam, Hinduism, the, the black Hebrew Israelites, Buddhism, Taoism, Shintoism, all the other isms you can think of. These are tools of Satan to use deceived men and women to worship the creature rather than the creator. To cover up grace and to cover up the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to a problem. Number four. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. Paul says in verse 21 of our text, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't have it both ways. That's what I should have called this sermon. You can't have it both ways. You can't participate with demons and participate with Christ and act like it's fine. To say it another way, James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. To put a more sharp point on it, to be connected with polluted worship is to be involved with the pollution. You can't avoid it. And that leads us to see another important point of application, number five. External activities matter. External activities matter. What we do matters. You can't claim the name of Christ and then involve yourself in activities under the influence of Satan and expect to remain unaffected. What we do matters. What we engage in. 
And so in these matters, we need prudence. We don't need to be naive. We need to be aware of what's going on. And so the simple application, overt idolatry is ruled out. Right? Don't go to the, to the false churches. Don't go to the mosque and bow down to Allah. Think you can have Allah and Christ together? Islam is just a religion of a false god, clearly under the influence of Satan. Further, the Bible makes clear that purposeful engagement of the dark spiritual realm is sin. Dangerous sin. Galatians 5, for example, lists sorcery as one of the deeds of the flesh. Sounds very weird to American ears where everything is naturalism. Sorcery is sinful. It's fleshly. The book of Revelation mentions deception and sorcery together multiple times. Revelation 18.23 says that entire nations are deceived by sorcery. Wow. Revelation 21 speaks of the final destination for sorcerers in the lake of fire. And so Christians shouldn't be going anywhere near that kind of stuff. Ouija boards, palm reading, seances, witches, witchcraft, nothing. You cannot participate with these things and expect to remain unaffected. But the next step outside of those things, things get a little more fuzzy. So we need to be watchful. We need to be um, on guard. We need not be naive. Right? The next step out from that. Okay, worshiping Allah is out, but what about fasting? Fasting is a Christian thing, so can an Arab Christian participate in the month-long fast of Ramadan with his old Muslim friends? That's okay, right? See, things get gray. At what point is participation dangerous? What about other seemingly neutral things? Have you thought about how the demonic might influence you and your faith through otherwise benign channels? Social media. Right? Not inherently sinful. And yet you best not be naive about Satan's influence and his aim through those channels. If his goal is to confuse and to deceive and to obfuscate truth, then you better believe that's what he's trying to do on social media. Satan may not be personally manipulating algorithms, but he can certainly work to influence the people that do implement and design those algorithms. And thereby he can influence what you see, what you think. What about the media, the news? You think the demonic realm has influence over the news and what's on TV? What's in the newspaper? To be antiquated. Anybody read those anymore? What about the movies we watch? I think Satan's got a good stronghold in Hollywood. The music we listen to? What about the places we visit? 
You think Satan has a vested interest in all these things and promoting lies and darkness rather than truth and light? Of course he does. And so we can't be naive. I can think of another false religion in America, certainly influenced by demonic forces. It's a religion of prominent priests making their sacrifices in the most impressive temples in our land. It's a religion that competes with the Lord's Day and it seeks to subtly distract from the gospel rather than overtly contradicting it at first. It's the religion of athletics. We're no different than Corinth in that regard. The athletes were gods back then. People spent all their time and their money consumed with following these gods. Sports fills our channels 24-7. It distracts us on the Lord's Day. It occupies our minds. It calls for our wallets. It demands our allegiance. It promotes division and rivalry. It gets our heart fixed on the things of this world and it distracts our attention from God. Do you feel that? Do you get more excited about your favorite athlete and team than, than we do about anything related to the work of the Lord? Now don't hear me saying that sports are sinful. But we cannot be naive about the influence. Especially Satan's influence over it and through it to deceive and to distract and to devalue the things of the Lord. Because doing so endangers us. Which leads to a sixth point. Paying homage to idols is flirting with the demonic. Paying homage to idols is flirting with the demonic. This is assumed in Paul's argumentation when he says, I don't want you to participate with demons. If we're bowing down to idols, if we're fellowshipping, participating, communing with the demonic, we would be foolish to think that's, that that's for our good and that God just gives that a, a thumbs up. And so Paul concludes the section with a couple more rhetorical questions. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? He's speaking of the danger of provoking God. It's similar to testing Christ we heard earlier in this passage. Commenting on this text, Calvin says that to contend with God is nothing short of voluntarily courting destruction. Therefore, if we have if we fear to have God as our enemy, let us shudder at the thought of framing excuses for our manifest sins. That means if we're fearful of the idea of having the living God displeased with us, then let us work to keep ourselves free from any pollution or contamination from demonic activity. Now to be sure, we must believe what the Bible says about this demonic activity but we must also believe it in the proportion that the Bible speaks of it. And that's important. We as Christians need to be balanced in our thinking as Scripture is balanced. We don't go around finding demonic activity under every falling leaf and every sneeze. We don't live in crippling fear of the demonic for Satan is a defeated foe and we've been liberated from his captivity. And yet we don't go naively courting Satan and the things under his influence. That's foolishness, and it tempts God towards holy jealousy. 
And so if you're here tonight and you're hearing what I'm saying the first time, if you're not sure about what to think about this Jesus and this demonic stuff that this crazy preacher's been talking about, I encourage you to read God's word. See what he says. Think as Paul would exhort all of us. Reason. The Bible tells us that Satan and demons are real. They're not little fluffy devils in red costumes carrying around their pitchforks like on Looney Tunes. They are real. They're personal beings bent on deception and death. That's what Jesus says of Satan. He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And that's exactly his MO. He seeks to promote that in the world. Lies and murder. That's exactly what he did to Jesus, actually. He lied about Jesus' identity, his origin, his goodness, his power, his truthfulness, his promises. And for years he lied and he murdered Jesus' character before men, before ultimately murdering Jesus on the cross through the hands of sinful men. And today Satan and his demons are still at work, promoting lies, distorting truth, to the end that Jesus gets defamed and men murder men. And if you don't believe in Christ, that's where you sit. And it should startle you. You are under the influence and deception of the most crafty, the most powerful, created spiritual being. His goal is your death, and his delight is in your deception. But don't just stop reading there. Jesus isn't like that. In fact, Jesus came so that you could have light rather than darkness. He came to deliver you to the truth, with the truth, not lies. In fact, he says that he is the truth. He's the embodiment of all that is good and righteous and true and beautiful. And not only that, he came that you might have life, not that you would be murdered. He came that your heart would overflow with rivers of living water. He came to make the light of God shine in your heart. He came to set you free from captivity to darkness. He came to give you liberty from fear. He came to release you from the chains of death and the grave and freed from the dominion of Satan. And he did all of that because of the love, the love that God has. He was so moved by goodness and love and compassion to come down and take action to save. Rather than murder, he brought life. And he brought it at the cost of his own. Jesus died for the salvation of sinful, deceived souls so that we might be set free from deception and death. See, Satan means to end your life in darkness and deception. But Jesus allowed his life to end so that yours never would have to be. Trust in this Jesus. You can have him as your savior. You can know the truth. You can know salvation. You can know mercy and light and grace and truth and all things pleasant and honorable and glorious. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't remain under the deception, under the sway of the great murderer and deceiver. There's no hope in that. There's no peace in that. Come to this Christ. Come to the light. And by sharing in his grace, you too can know peace. You can know fellowship, communion, participation, 
You could participate with Christ rather than demons. And all that's necessary is to believe. To believe. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to shine the light of truth in our hearts. To cast away the remaining darkness, the sin that clings so closely. Help us to walk wisely and not naively in this world. Help us to be kept far from temptation. Keep us far from the demonic. Protect us, Lord. Help us to be prudent. Help us to be wise. Guard our steps and our purity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.